Okay, we're recording now. First of all, thank you to everyone for listening to us today. This podcast will be on vestibular therapy 101, the basics of vestibular therapy. What we'll do is we'll go through a couple real simple vestibular therapy cases, and we have two uh, wonderful uh, leaders with us today. First of all, we have uh, Paul Vidal, who is a physical therapist. He is the president and owner of Specialized Physical Therapy. And we have Betsy Grace Georgilos, who is the neurologic team leader at Good Shepherd Pen Partners, University of Pennsylvania. So first of all, thank you very much for, for being with us today, guys. Sure, you're welcome. Paul, do you want to give a little background on your, on your expertise and uh, how it relates to vestibular therapy? Sure. Thanks, Ethan, for having us. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, my background's actually in orthopedics and uh, manual therapy, and then I've and then I've uh, specialized in vestibular rehabilitation. So I've been able to put those two approaches together to uh, treat patients with vestibular disorders because they often have kind of uh, orthopedic issues at the same time. So putting the two uh, approaches together has, has helped out. That's uh, essentially my background. How about you, Betsy? What's your background with vestibular therapy? Um, I started at Penn uh, close to 11 years ago and work in the Penn Balance Center. So that was kind of my whole introduction, my mentorship. I was very fortunate to work with some incredible doctors um, of various backgrounds in vestibular dysfunction, um, and that really grew my love for it and my experience. All right, great, great. All right, now here's the first question, guys. Okay. What is the average vestibular patient you guys see? So say the person comes in and they have a diagnosis of, of neuronitis. How do they, how do they present? What, what do you typically see in, in, in the office? Betsy, you can answer first. Um, typically in an outpatient setting, um, we don't frequently, it happens on occasion, but we don't frequently see people within the first couple weeks. Mm-hmm. So they're a little while out. They're, their symptoms have gotten better, but they still have symptoms most typically um, when they move around, especially head movement typically bothers them. They often report um, some kind of visual disturbance. They won't typically call it blurriness or something like that, but, um, mm. but they'll talk about my vision, my vision. Um, and then any kind of movement balance is often often thrown off. Um, but when they're totally still, most typically if you have a pretty simple patient, they're going to be symptom, uh, symptom-free when they're still. Okay. So typically when they initially get the symptoms, they can last anywhere from a couple hours to days. Usually they have that horrible vertiginous type of episode, and then it calms down after the acute phase, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so and then by the time... by the setting, they typically will not have any kind of complaints of vertigo, like true vertigo, room spinning kind of symptoms. Um, they're more just kind of feeling... Um, Dizziness, they, they have a hard time describing what that is, imbalance, sometimes lightheadedness, but, but they should not at that point, um, after that initial vestibular crisis, they, sh- they typically will not report any kind of vertigo, true vertigo. Okay. And it's, it's typically exacerbated with movement, correct? Usually at, at rest they're usually okay, but with movement usually mm-hmm. they're okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Paul, is that what you typically see as well? You typically see that you don't see these patients until they're at least about two weeks out after their initial onset of symptoms? Yeah, I would say that's that's pretty accurate. I mean, rare. I mean, if they're an acute episode, they're either they're at either home or at the hospital. So uh, yeah, we see them after the acute episode, and like Betsy was saying, you know, symptoms are, are calmed down, but then are then they're provoked by motion, positional change. They have uh, 
difficulty with focusing their eyes, that type of thing, that impacts their uh, ability to function like they, they want to. Betsy, do you, do you see that, that in some cases, some of these patients, they can't actually work because of the symptoms? The symptoms are still so severe, they, they can't actually uh, uh, do, their, do their job and, and might be looking to go out in disability? Um, I, I do see that. I think sh short-term disability, perhaps, is mm -hmm. a rare occurrence and typically wouldn't get put through for any kind of long-term disability for this type of a problem. Okay. Um, but I often do see patients who aren't able to get back to work, so that maybe depending on the severity, that may be one of our first things, how do we get you back to, to that basic normal thing of just get, being able to get back to work. Okay. Some patients will have already started to get back to their, their job. They might be modified. But okay. Now, now Paul, what, what, kind of, what kind of tests and measures um, do you do on that initial exam? On the initial assessment, um, well, first of all, we obviously get a thorough history of uh, what uh, their present problem is, but uh, from a Subjective input uh, in our clinic, we use, like many other people, uh, other clinics, we use the dizziness handicap inventory. Uh, we'll use um, gait assessments such as the dynamic gait index or functional gait assessment um, to get some uh, uh, measurements there that we can also use uh, post-treatment for outcomes. Uh, but in terms of objective measurements uh, that uh, a therapist or would perform, we use the head thrust test. Um, and the dick saw bike as needed. Uh, we look at ocular motor movements in terms of smooth pursuits, saccadic eye motion, uh, gaze stability. Um, and we test balance in, in our clinic with platform testing. We have uh, you know, uh, a tool that would essentially do the, like the modified uh, CAD-SID testing. Okay, okay. Now, Beth, do you work in a, a little more of a specialized clinic? Is there anything else that you guys do specifically in your clinic? Um, I, all the things that Paul talked about we'll do with a patient. Uh, we also will typically do a dynamic visual acuity test, okay. um, and we are just getting a computerized version. That's much less commonly available, but we have just a, an eye chart on the wall that we use, a Logmar chart. Okay. So we'll do the dynamic visual acuity, and then we also have um, infrared video goggles that can show us the eye without the patient being able to fixate on anything. Okay. And there are some specific tests we can do with, with those goggles on when we take out visual fixation that can, can show us some things that we wouldn't see in just regular, just general room light. Okay. Now with the dynamic visual acuity test, is there a certain speed that you move the person's head at during the test? The, the goal is you want to move around two hertz. Okay. So it's, it's a relatively quick movement. And okay. I always suggest that you, you as the therapist, move the patient's head yourself. Mm -hmm. If you just have a patient do it, they're not going to move at the speed you need to. Okay. Do you guys use a metronome or anything like that to standardize the speed? Um, not always, but we definitely sometimes do. Many of us actually have just downloaded it on our smartphones. So we use that <laughs> um, nice, simple little way you can, you can cheat in the clinic. You don't have to right. go out and buy any equipment. Just download it, and you can just kind of um, have it going on your smartphone. Well, that's the and one nice for thing about teaching patients to to do it. You can use that as well. Okay, but that's the one nice thing about vestibular therapy is that you really don't need any specialized equipment truly to actually do the therapy, and most of the assessment can be done just hands on. Correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, Paula, are, are there are there any uh, certain tests or measures that are more clinically relevant? Are, are there any certain certain tests that have better sensitivity or specificity? Where if you're going to get certain results, you can you can kind of if you get a positive result with that test. You definitely know something's going on. Yeah, that's a good question. I think clinically for us, it would probably be the head thrust test. 
that would help identify a unilateral hypofunction, maybe in some cases a bilateral case. Um, the Hall Pike or Dix Hall Pike maneuver is a strong test to use. Um, a test we use sometimes when you know when we find the, uh, the head thrust test to be positive, when we have a strong sense it's a, a hypofunction, we may go to the Fukuda step test, but uh, that's not as strong of a test to use. And in isolation, I wouldn't put a lot of weight into that one. But I would say for unilateral uh, problems, the head thrust test uh, would be my go-to test. Okay. Okay. Now, now, Betsy, so we had this patient who was diagnosed with neuronitis. We went through our initial exam, and as a physical therapist, we our, our functional impairment diagnosis was they had a vestibular hypofunction. So what type of, of treatment are we providing for this patient with neuronitis? What specifically are we doing? Are you specifically asking kind of initial treatment or just more general? Uh, well, initially, what would you do with them, and then how would you progress them down the treatment line? Initially, um, I always try, and sometimes it's more applicable than others, I always try to get somebody on a walking program because just simply getting out and walking is going to help their body to start to recover. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the number one things, and I'll give them as much kind of guidance to that program and, and exact kind of recommendations as I need to. Um, the other absolute number one thing that I'll always start with them is the vestibulocular reflex exercise. We call it the VOR exercise. Okay. Um, I would, depending on the patient, I would start either if they're more symptomatic, 30 seconds, or in most cases in an outpatient, I can start them with a minute, on a minute, mm -hmm. of doing the vestibulocular reflex exercise. And I really try to get them in standing um, as early as, as possible for a patient, which, again, in an outpatient setting when they're not quite as acute, um, most patients can do that in standing. Okay. So that's kind of where I would start. And then to move on, um, there's lots of progressions you can do with the, the VOR exercises. There's a VOR times one and a VOR times two. The times two is kind of twice as hard, so it's a progression of. And then within both of those exercises, there's lots of ways to progress them. You can change mm -hmm. body position. You can change surface they're standing on. You can put their feet together, put one foot in front of the other. Um, you can add a background, a, a complex, busy background to it, mm -hmm. which is, is more difficult for the patient to be able to do the task. Okay. And then there's just endless ways that you can work on, on increasing balance. Um, one of the most important things would be to, to change their sensory input. So specifically with a hypofunction patient, you want to put them on, on like a foam surface and work on closing their eyes so they're forced to bring in vestibular input. But again, that's just one way that you can, you can work on getting their balance back. Okay. So with the, with the vestibular aqua reflex exercises, the VOR exercises, we're actually trying to cause central adaptation essentially, correct? And that's the main principle mm -hmm. for those exercises? Adaptation is sometimes called compensation. Okay. All right. Now, Paula, is there, is there anything else that you... Further? What's that? Do you want me to explain that a little further? Or just no, that's okay. That's okay. Paul, is there, is there anything else that you would do with one of these patients, with a patient with neuronitis? Um, well, I would definitely do what uh, Betsy was saying. I mean, there's so much you can do, but um, you know, I often really uh, try to stress to people to engage activity as tolerated because uh, I think those patients who engage activity earlier on with intolerance will, will do better. Um, and like I mentioned in the beginning, oftentimes when someone has a vestibular disorder, they tend not to move their head and neck uh, very much, so that gives them some secondary musculoskeletal impairments. So if I f think it's something that's inhibiting their uh, progress, we'll say VOR exercises, I'll, I'll introduce some manual physical therapy 
especially to the upper neck and uh, cervical muscles. Okay. Now, if someone was positionally sensitive, so say we saw them on the initial exam and they had symptoms predominantly when they were rolling to the right or when they put their head down towards their knee, are there certain exercises that we could do to reduce their symptoms in certain positions? Betsy, um, you can, you can yep. answer that. Okay, go ahead. Did you want Paul to answer? I'm sorry. No, Betsy, you can answer. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, Absolutely, we can we can certainly introduce exercises. We call them habituation exercises. So whatever the the person's specific sensitive um, movements would be, mm -hmm. we can absolutely do that. And you kind of apply that exercise in a very regimented and kind of guided way. Okay. Um, most typically, I would say your straightforward typical vestibular neuritis type patient. Um, some of the other things that we work on are going to address all those just movement sensitivity issues. Mm -hmm. But So I don't typically start with habituation because, again, I don't want to be giving these patients, you know, 12 exercises. Um, but Less is more, correct? Something in, what was that? Less is more, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. if they're not doing their exercises, then it doesn't matter how many you've given them. It's not exactly. going to work. Right. Um, so, so I typically don't start with that, but absolutely habituation can, can be a useful um, type of exercise. Okay. Now, Paul, how often do you see these patients for vestibular therapy in the clinic? Uh, generally, I would see the patient uh, one, maybe twice a week um, over a period of, say, uh, four, maybe up to eight weeks, depending on the, on the individual. But uh, I would say on average it's one time a week with a, with a strong emphasis on a compliant home exercise program. I feel like if the patient really has a lot of balance issues or is maybe not as stable, I may uh, see them more often to work on balance. Mm -hmm. But if it's uh, that, that's typically what we do in our clinic as well. Is is that yeah. if someone has a if they scored a high fall risk on one of the, the the balance measures we use, like the dynamic gait index or something, then we'll typically start them off at twice a week until they're at a lower fall risk. And then once they get to be a lower fall risk, then we'll see them, you know, once a week. Or if they're younger. Um, typically, we can see them once every couple weeks over a span of anywhere from about four to eight weeks until their symptoms resolve. So, um, yeah, so as far as this patient population, you don't necessarily see them a whole lot in the clinic sometimes, do you? Um, now, as, Betsy, as, as far as insurance reimbursement, do, do most insurances pay for vestibular therapy? In my experience, yes. Um, I've certainly heard from people across various states in the country um, that they have more difficulty, but in, in my experience, yes. Um, again, as Paul was saying, the, the frequency is less than your typical two or three times a week. Mm -hmm. So if you explain that, the insurance companies are actually saving money in that way. Mm -hmm. So in, in my experience, they are. I'm also in a hospital setting, so I don't know if Paul actually is more hands-on with the billing and what gets paid. He might have something, some more excuse me, input on that. Yeah. Um, we get reimbursed for care in, 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 in most, in, in, at least in our state or in New Jersey, uh, uh, getting reimbursed for uh, vestibular rehabilitation uh, is, hasn't been an issue. Actually, more recently with the uh, cantilith repositioning maneuver procedure, at least through Medicare, we're, uh, we're getting that reimbursed. So that, that's a good thing with the, uh, you know, the BPPV diagnosis code. So that's great. Some success with that. And just a note about that, Ethan, um, for those people across the country who do have trouble, um, there are lots of resources that the APTA, the Neurology SIG, and specifically the Vestibular SIG are able to offer people that are having trouble. 
Okay, great, great. Is that something that they can access online? They can access on the probably the Sibula SIG page, um, okay. or they can always contact our chair, Susan Whitney, um, and she can either help them herself or direct them to the most appropriate person. Okay, great, great. Now let's switch gears a little bit. Now we we hear a lot about benign parasocial positional vertigo. So as far as seeing that person in the clinic, Paul, how does that patient usually present in the clinic? Uh, dizzy. Now um, they they have uh, the patient with DPPV uh, comes to our clinic. They're typically complaining of vertigo, symptoms of uh, positional changes, uh, laying down in bed, rolling in bed, uh, bending over or looking up, and usually. Their vertigo is short-lasting, a few seconds, maybe usually definitely less than a minute or so. Um, and, you know, you can get a strong sense of that in their history. And then upon examination, most times uh, a Dick's Hall pipe maneuver, either left or right, will be detected. Um, and, uh, and some uh, smaller percentage of cases, a, a roll test for horizontal canal will be, uh, will be used to detect horizontal canal DPPV. Okay. Now, Betsy, with the with the Dix Hall bike, what specifically would you see with the Dix Hall bike being a positive test? Is there a certain sign for, say, if someone had posterior canal BPPV that you would see specifically? Uh, definitely, yes. It's a pretty exact test. Um, so, posterior canal, the most common by far canal that's involved, you would typically see when you lay the person down and extend their head back um, to the side that their head tur is turned. So, we'll say if their head's turned to the left you'll see a combination of an upbeating torsional nystagmus towards the left side. So there's an upbeating component and a torsional component rotation of the eye towards the side that the ear is down. Um, and it's, it's a mixed um, type of nystagmus pattern, and the patient typically is going to have, excuse me, have pretty significant symptoms at the same time. Okay. Now, how long will... It's going to be pretty short-lasting. It shouldn't okay. last more than a minute or so. How long would, it t would the symptoms or, or the nystagmus typically last for in most patients? Um, the the general rule is one to two minutes. Um, in my experience, most patients, it's well under that. Um, okay. Sometimes it's just a few seconds. Okay, just a few seconds. Okay. Now it's, but definitely it's, it should be under a minute or, or not more than two minutes. Okay. Now, Paul, as, as far as the, the typical BPPV patient you have, that you know they have you know posterior canalothiasis BPPV where the debris is free-floating in the canal, what, what's the standard treatment for that, and, and how specifically do you do it? Standard treatment for the posterior canal um, canalothiasis is a uh, canal repositioning maneuver, uh, but better known as the, the Epley maneuver. Um, and it's usually a, the Epley maneuver has a high success rate and can be often uh, often uh, address or improve the uh, BPPV in one to two visits. Okay, great. So, so really you're not seeing this patient a whole lot then. If they just have BPPV with no other underlying symptoms, no balance impairment, then possibly we can only see them for maybe one extra or two extra treatments, and that's really about it. Yeah, I think the, yeah, it's not a long uh, duration of care or episode of care. And, uh, in fact, it's, it's, it's one of the things you become uh, known for in your area because you're able to address uh, a pretty severe symptom for the patient that's affecting their quality of life. and. Uh, it resolves pretty quickly. Okay. In most cases. Betsy, do you have anything to add for that? Um, no, that pretty much covers it. The one thing I would say, um, I think it's definitely important because, as Paul said, it's 
it's something that does have a little more knowledge and, and more physicians, I think, are picking up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it's such kind of a, a hot thing that people are hearing about, they may have something more than just BPPV. Mm-hmm. So I think it's definitely important to, to not just assume it's just BPPV, to make sure that you, if patients are having any other symptoms, to do a, a full evaluation because they might have something else going on, which a lot of different things can be correlated with BPPV. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about um, a, a hypofunction patient. Um, a lot of patients, well, not a lot, but there are certainly that population that has BPPV and a hypofunction. So you want to make sure that if there is anything else going on that you're addressing that. And as you mentioned before, um, anyone that has residual balance issues, we absolutely can work on. Okay, great. Now, Paul, what age groups do you see for vestibular therapy? Is, is it mostly just a geriatric problem, or do you see all different age groups? Yeah, that's a great question. I, we we actually see all age groups, uh, even even children. But uh, you know, the typical, I mean, if you were going to generalize BPPV, it, it may be the the older population. But for the most part, it, it, it runs the spectrum from younger to the to the older patient. Okay. Betsy, what's the, the youngest patient you've treated with a vestibular dysfunction? For a vestibular um, dys- with a vestibular dysfunction, I've yeah. treated, I think, a two-year-old, two a or three-year-old. Okay. Um, it was not BPPV, but they did have vestibular dysfunction. Okay. And how about the, the oldest patient you've treated as well? The oldest for me was, I think, 99, actually. We didn't get her to 100 when I was seeing her. <laughs> so, as Paul said, it really does run the gamut. Okay, so it's really any age, but but generally what we're going to see, especially we're going to see people, you know, more towards the, the older population, but we'll really run the gamut from anyone from a, you know, a toddler all the way up to to someone who might be over 100 years old. Correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Okay. And as Paul said, it the BPPV definitely is more common. Um, it, it's more frequent in the older population, partly because of just the typical aging process and. Just like everything else, the crystals in the ear get older, too, and have, have problems as people get older. Um, but, yeah, definitely the, the gamut of, of patients. All right, great, great. Well, Paul, Betsy, I really appreciate you for doing this, this podcast. Um, you guys gave a lot of wonderful information um, for the listeners out there. Um, from all of us, I'd like to thank you, and, and have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.